The scripture this morning is from the book of Mark, chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those who he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have the authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boagenes, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Stonebridge. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, these, these names that meant nothing then mean everything to us now. We name churches after them. We name cities after them. Uh, we're grateful, Lord, for the ways in which you drew them together, Lord, but don't allow our vision of them 2,000 years later to obscure what you were doing back then as you built your church on people that we wouldn't expect. Father, we ask that you'd come and meet with us. We need you. And we ask that these would not be my words, but your words, and not my thoughts, but your thoughts, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So uh, we're talking this morning about the gathering, the, the, the calling of the 12. Uh, the, Jesus calls 12 disciples here. He actually calls them throughout the rest of the book of Mark. Mark calls them just the 12. Not the 12 disciples, not the 12 apostles, just the 12. The Greek word is dodeca, which is where we get dodecahedron. It's a 12-sided figure, I guess. I don't know if some of you guys knew that. Trivia at no extra cost. So um, the dodeca, the 12. And it made me think about who are some famous groups of 12. And I thought of these. There's the Dirty Dozen. Uh, there's Cheaper by the Dozen. There's Ocean's 12. There's 12 Angry Men. And what these have in common, aside from being movies, is that they are... Um, pictures of people being gathered for a purpose of some sort, whether that's um, <laughs> building a blended family, assassinating Nazis, uh, build, being a jury, uh, helping George Clooney write a sequel, uh, whatever. Those, those are the, the purposes. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is Jesus's purpose? What is he building when he's building the team that he's building? Jesus calls these 12 guys, and when he does the, the kingdom of uh, of of God is making a huge move forward in this move, but not for the reasons that you would think. It's making a huge move forward, but not because these guys are anything special. First, I think it's helpful, uh, a little bit of review, uh, to just remind us where we are in the, in the story of Mark. The very last verse from last week said this, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So what we see here is that, um, Jesus has managed in a comparatively short amount of time, we're only three chapters in, and already people want him dead, right? And not just any people, it says the Pharisees, now those are the, these, these groups couldn't be more different. The Pharisees are the uber-religious Jews. 
The Herodians are the secular religious leaders. They would not agree on much, but they both agree. They get together and they agree that Jesus needs to die. And we're just a couple of chapters into this book. That's part of the opposition. We also notice this, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, but Jesus is encountering spiritual opposition. It says in verse 11 that these fell down before him and they cried out, you are the son of God. Remember, that's not, uh, if you were here a few weeks ago, you know that's not an act of submission. It would sound great if somebody else was saying it, but here it's actually, uh, it's an act of desperation because we said a few weeks ago that the, the demons are trying to claim power over Jesus and it was believed that if you can name something, if you have something's name, someone's name, then you have power over them. And so remember we saw earlier that they were saying, you are the Holy One of God and that didn't work. So here they're saying, you're the son of God, and that's not working. Later, we're going to hear them go, you're the son of the most high God. They're trying all these different, of course, you cannot control the son of God, but they're trying to gain mastery over him by naming him. So there's that. And then there's even this. It's interesting that even the people who are on Jesus's side here, the crowds, are a hazard to him. It says he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they as the ESV says, lest they crush him. Now, this is a group of common people who love him, unlike some of these others, the demons, the Herodians, the Pharisees. These guys love him, probably not for the Son of God stuff or the teaching stuff, but more for the miracle stuff, what they can get out of him. They have something maybe in their life that they want him to fix. And so if you can imagine this crowd of people, this enormous, the largest crowd up to this point that Jesus has seen in his ministry, no doubt. It describes where they're all coming from, We know that these people are coming from a hundred miles or more away. That is without CNN, without Facebook Live, the word has gotten out and these people are crowding around Jesus believing that not only they want to be near him, get get a selfie with him, but they actually want to touch him because they believe that that will heal them. So can you imagine this mob of people all trying to push to the front to touch him? He needs a getaway pulpit the boat. We've never needed a getaway pulpit here at Stonebridge. We've thought about it, but it's never really come to that before, right? So He could get crushed by this crowd. And so you feel, you get this sense that everything's kind of amping up, right? How does Jesus respond to all of that amping up? Well, it says Jesus went up on a mountainside. And we could do a whole sermon about that, about how, hey, when life is stressful, you need to get away and you need to pull away and find time to be alone and to pray and to get off into nature, go up on the mountain. And you know, those those are good things. But that's not what's going on here. That's not what this passage is about. When it says that Jesus went up on a mountainside, something significant is happening. Listen to what N.T. Wright says. The hills around the lake were not so much the place where people would go for peace and quiet like day trippers in the woods and mountains of Europe or America, but as the places where people went to plot revolution. And what Jesus now does is among his most revolutionary gestures. This is where the freedom fighters go. This is where the insurrectionists go to plot their overthrows. That's what's happening here. But more specifically, even than that, Jesus is probably intentionally reenacting something here. We know that Moses went up on the mountain and he did that to create a covenant between God and his people, Israel. We know that Jesus has been, in other ways, overtly taking on the mantle of second Moses. He goes into the wilderness. Later, we're going to see that he provides a miraculous meal. The the loaves and fishes meant to reflect what the manna was like in the desert for the Israelites, right? All of this is meant to show the symmetry between the, the gathered people of the Old Testament 
and the gathered people of the New Testament. He's showing a symmetry between those two groups, the people of God. And the way he does that, moreover, and if you don't get that from the mountain imagery, you certainly would get it from this. He calls 12. Now, why 12? Well, most of us in here probably can make the, the connection, but if, if uh, for a Jewish audience, nobody would miss it. 100% would understand how many tribes of Israel were there. There were 12. And Jesus is specifically calling 12. Now, there were, the Assyrians had come in and taken over the northern kingdom, which was 10 of those tribes, in 722 B.C. So for over 700 years, they, all the tribes haven't been in existence together, but the, prof, the, um, the prophets have been foretelling a time when the Messiah comes and he will reestablish all of Israel all 12 tribes. You can see it in Ezekiel 48. It's in Zechariah 9. My favorite is in, in uh, uh, Isaiah 49, 6. It says this. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also, get that for a minute, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. So he's saying it's, um, it's a I'm going to do something big. I'm going to draw all nations to myself. But I'm going to start, by the way, by, and it's a small thing, he says, but it's a big thing. I'm going to restore the 12 tribes. I'm going to draw those back together. And I'm going to resettle them. N.T. Wright says this again. So when Jesus called the 12, called 12 of his followers apart from the crowds and gave them special status and a special commission, nobody who heard of it could miss what he was doing. He was saying more clearly than any word could have done, this isn't simply a great healing mission. This isn't even simply a time of spiritual renewal. This is the restoration that we've all been waiting for. He chose these 12 to say, I'm reconstituting true Israel. I'm getting the band back together. I'm forming a new nucleus that's going to build from, this is going to be the, the, the center of what I'm doing in this world. And that number 12 was so important that we, we find out later that um, yeah, after Jesus' resurrection and after his ascension, right, uh, we see it recorded in the book of Acts, what is the very next thing that the apostles do? They elect someone to replace Judas because there were only 11. And they, they understood, it can't just be 11 of us. There have to be 12 because that's what God is doing, right? This is where the New Testament church starts, it starts with these 12 guys. And that's us. We're the church. So we can learn a lot about who we're supposed to be, about who we are, by looking at who these guys were. And I want to point it out from kind of the center of the passage that Stephanie just read. You look at verses 13 through 15, and it says this. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. From that, I want to try and show you, I, I see three things there, that we are a called people, that we are a known people, and that we are a sent people, that we're called, that we're known, and that we're sent. First, we're a called people, and you see that in verse 13. It's very clear there. It says, he went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. That is backwards from the way that rabbis usually did things. We've said this before. If you wanted to be a student of a rabbi, you had to apply. It's the same thing today with college. You, college, you apply to college. College doesn't apply to you. 
right? You go after the assistantship. The assistantship doesn't go after you, right? But in this case, Jesus is the one who does the selection. Remember that Israel is a chosen people. It's a chosen nation. These 12 are a chosen people, just the same. They're a chosen community. Let me ask you this. How would you go about choosing a team to get a job done? Some of you guys are in companies where maybe you've had to do hiring, all the hiring, or some of the hiring to build the team around you that you need for your company. So, and often it's said that as you're trying to hire, that you hire with the three C's in mind. You guys know these? It's character, chemistry, and competency, right? So that when we hire, we're looking for people who have the right character, who have the right chemistry with the rest of the team so that this person isn't just a good person, but they're good with the team that they have, right? And then the right competency. Either they already have it in their resume or they have the capacity to acquire the right skills for the job, right? Character, chemistry, competency. uh, Jim Collins, good to great, calls it getting the right people on the bus, right? And then he says, once you get them on the bus, You can move them around. You can change their job descriptions. You can ask Cheryl to change people's job descriptions. She's good at that. So, but you can get them on the right seats on the bus app. But first, what does it mean to have the right people on the bus? Who is on Jesus's bus? Who did he just invite onto the bus? Character, chemistry, competency, right? Guys, there is no indication that these guys have anything more than at best average character. Peter is very impulsive. James and John, um, they're called the sons of thunder, which is probably about their um, volatility, or it might just mean that they're really loud. They're very loud people, right? The sons of thunder. I've been thinking about calling my children that. If you come over to our house around 6.30, on any given evening, you will see the sons of thunder and daughter of thunder in action. So. And Jesus knowingly, think about this, he knowingly puts Judas on the bus. Judas. Judas Iscariot, right? By the way, Iscariot, probably not his last name. It would be better if it was. Iscariot probably means where he's from, Judas of Kerioth, which is a town outside of Galilee, which would mean he's the only non-Galilean in the bunch. But it could also mean, and we're not quite sure, but the Greek word sikarios, Iscariot, is the word for bandit. The Hebrew root sakar is uh, the Hebrew word for lie, or liar. So it could it be not just, hey, Judas from Kerioth, but Judas the bandit, Judas, Judas the liar, probably names that he was given after his death, probably not things that they called him to his face. <laughs> if our church, if we start talking about, you know, Peter the bandit and, you know, Brent the liar, you should find a different church because that's not what we want to be known for, right? So who's on Jesus' bus? Not necessarily guys of great character. Thomas we call doubting Thomas, right? These guys have a lot of flaws. But the right chemistry, right? (laughs) You want people who are going to get along with each other. And so you want people who are going to work well on a team together. So Jesus grabs Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. Matthew the tax collector, which means that he is in cahoots with Rome, and Simon the Zealot, who is part of a movement that is dedicated to a holy war against Rome. Imagine putting those guys at the same table at the company picnic, right? This is not good chemistry. And then, character chemistry, competency. There is nothing for us to gather this idea that Jesus picked the 12 best he could find. That Jesus picked the 12 that he thought had the best chance of making this thing happen. There was nothing particularly head of the pack about these guys. They do not have a stand-up resume. None of them are from the religious elite. None of them are from the, the current leadership structures. 
Most of them, we don't know anything about after they're named here, especially in the book of Mark. There's only a couple that we even hear called out by name. There's some of these guys, we don't know anything about them except their names. And honestly, we are not even really clear on that, when you look at the different lists, it looks like Bartholomew is probably Nathaniel, that, that the other Judas is probably called Thaddeus, which I think I would much rather be called Thaddeus than not that Judas, right? Like you have to introduce yourself at parties as, yes, I'm Judas, no, not that Judas, right? So Thaddeus. As the story continues, it's, it's clear that they don't understand what he's saying. He's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. They think he's talking about lunch, right? It says at various points that, that they... He, they they consistently fumble the ball. They're, they're called slow in, ver, in chapter 4. In chapter 8, Jesus calls them hard-hearted. They're called faithless in chapter 9. In chapter 16, they're called cowardly and afraid. So why these guys? Why these guys? God only knows why these guys. And I mean that literally. God only knows. We don't know. But we know this. It wasn't about them. God called them And this is a great encouragement to me. God called them in spite of them. God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. Maybe you've heard that before, but think about that. It's not about that we have something great to offer the kingdom. It's that God draws us who don't have the right character, chemistry, competency, and he says, I'm going to make something of you. I'm going to make you who I want you to be. Jesus took the have-nots and the average Joes that we see in this passage of Scripture and polar opposites, and he put them into a group that would become the backbone of the greatest movement in history. So what does that mean for you? I think it's absolutely, and it's emancipating to imagine this because we're a community of the called, and he calls us in spite of us. It's recognizing that God's love for you is not contingent on your loveliness. That God's use of you is is not based on your usefulness, right? There's an author named James uh, Edwards that I was reading this week who said this. He said, oh, there it goes. Go back one. Uh, He said, God, uh, the society into which Jesus calls them is determined not by their preferences, but by his summons. Its members have nothing in common except his sovereign call, apart from which the community cannot exist. They don't have anything in common except the fact that Jesus has called them together, and if Jesus hadn't called them together, they wouldn't exist as a community. If that's true, then this place and every church should look awesomely different than any of the other structures that you would be a part of out there. The people of this church would be linked together in a way that no other structure links people together. The, the leaders in our church would be different than the leaders that our culture expects, right? I mean, it would mean that we don't nominate someone to be a leader in our church just because they're the CEO of a tech firm or the president of a bank. Russell Moore wrote about this in his book Onward. I, I think this is a very challenging paragraph about what we expect when we think about leadership and what it means instead that leadership is about being with Jesus in the gathered community. Listen to this. He says, what would it mean if our leadership structures in the church weren't as predictable as that of any other organization? What if the images in our publications and digital platforms weren't always those who meet the same standards of physical attractiveness as the reigning culture, thus subtly reinforcing the message that the supermodels will inherit the earth? 
but instead featured those that the world might consider fat or ugly or awkward, but who bear a mantle of spiritual authority. What if our churches weren't divided up by the same economic and racial and political and generational categories that would bind us together even if Jesus were not alive? The quote goes on, it says this. What would it mean in your church if a minimum wage janitor were mentoring the multimillionaire executive of the restaurant where he cleans toilets because the janitor mentor has the spiritual wisdom that his boss protege needs? It would look awfully strange, but it would look no stranger than a crucified Nazarene governing the universe. We've shared this before, but the word church in Greek is, is ekklesia. It means called out. We are the called out ones. We're a called out people. We're not the church because of our design, but we're the church because of his design. He made this. This was his initiative. He called us. We are a community that's chosen by his grace, and that's what unites us. And that means the structures here are very different because at the foot of the cross, it's a level playing field. There, there aren't the, the different levels and structures that we might see in our company or in our, or other organizations that we're a part of. And that means if the central thing that holds us together is Jesus, then there is room for a whole lot of different in this place, a whole lot of diverse in this place. If what holds us together is, is following Jesus. Secondly, that's not just that we're a called people, but we are a a known people, and you'll see that in verse 14. He appointed 12 that they might be with him. And I think it's easy for us to just go right past that. But why did he appoint them? That they might be with him. The new community is built on a relationship with him. That's what it's built on. I know when I was in, you can picture this from college, I'm thinking about when I was in seminary, sometimes in the classes that we were taking, we were describing our semester load to, to each other. We might say, hey, um, Rick, what do, you, what do you study in this semester? And he would say, well, I got Sproul for systematics, and I've got Pratt for, for Hebrew, and I've, I've got Brown for pastoral ministry. We, we, th- these, these, pa- these professors had so much of an influence on the class that we, when we described the class, we tended to describe them, right? But none of us were in those classes to learn them. I wasn't in seminary to learn Steve Brown, right? I was there to learn something, pastoral ministry maybe, and to learn that through him. In other words, the relationship was a means to me learning something that I was there for, right? But with Jesus, it's different. It was different for the 12. It's different for us as well. They're not following him to learn a subject or a trade or a concept or a philosophical system. They're following him to learn him, They're in the class to learn him. Jesus called them to be with him. Following Jesus is not a means to a greater end. He is the end. I know I'm being very basic with this, but I think it's just this basic. The goal of knowing Jesus is knowing Jesus. And what that means for us is I'm following Christ not so that I will learn seven steps to becoming a better leader. I'm not following Christ so that I can improve my marriage or so that I can do better in my finances. I'm not following Christ so that I can uh, gain something out of it, right? I'm not following him because I'm trying to uh, even be smarter about the Bible. I'm following him because I want to know him. The goal of knowing Jesus is knowing Jesus. In fact, the, it's their relationship, the, the apostles, 
that is the foundation of their whole ministry. It constitutes their ministry. We find out in Acts 4, after the resurrection, and all that we see uh, Peter and John, and they're, they're, they're defending Christ, they're proclaiming the gospel, and everybody's kind of astounded by this, and he, they're showing up, the religious leaders, and uh, the people around them say, it says this, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. It's the only way they can explain it. They can't explain it any other way. How can these guys know so much? Well, they were with that guy for three years. They were with Jesus. Not just to learn about him, but to know him. The power of their ministry is rooted in the relationship that they have with their Savior. Now, let me ask you this. How would that change your devotional practices this week? How would that change the way you live this week out if you really grabbed a hold of this idea that the goal of your life is knowing him? Not just knowing about him. The goal of your life is knowing him and being with him. That the goal of knowing Jesus is simply knowing Jesus. It might disarm you enough this week to actually talk to him. Not just to learn about him, but to be with him. Discipleship isn't a what. Discipleship is a who. And so instead of the seminary professor illustration, let me try a different one that I think might help. And maybe um, I I can at least say this from the guy's point of view. Maybe some of the ladies here can can relate to this as well. But I'm picturing um, a, a composite of many friends of mine in high school and college, not myself, of course, who um, would do whatever it took to try, and maybe there was a girl that they were interested in, and they would do whatever they could to contrive a schedule that would allow them to be in the presence of that person with the hope of maybe making some, some deeper connections, right? And so a friend of mine who you know, was pretty adept at math suddenly developed a math deficiency and needed a math tutor, and what do you know? She's a math tutor, right? A guy who can't carry a tune in a bucket joins the choir because she's an alto, Right? I have friends, I have friends, right, who have done all sorts of crazy things that they would never have done normally to try and and get time with this person of interest, that they would take up French cooking or, or adopt a highway or save the whales or whatever it might be, right? I was vegetarian for two weeks trying to impress a girl, and eventually it was, it was Heather or bacon, and bacon won. I just, I'm sorry. <laughs> But the things that we do, and let he who's without sin cast the first stone on that one. (laughs) The things that we would do to try and get to know that person better, we would move, would, would cause us to step into areas that we would maybe never have formerly considered doing. What would you do this week? What will you do this week to move into Jesus's space? to create opportunities, to get time with him, to get intentional about knowing him. Um, Some of it's right here this morning, just us being gathered together as a church. That's a big part of it, right? Because we're called to do this in community. When Jesus gathers the 12, he doesn't gather them up and then schedule um, weekly coaching meetings with each one of them individually. He wants them to learn him as a group. And so part of learning Jesus is learning him in community. But there's still a very individual dimension to this where we just have to pursue him on our own. And let me encourage you this week to, uh, just to use the illustration, to intentionally do something that you would not normally do this week to pursue Jesus. I'll say it again. I just want you to 
insert something there. What is something that you could do that you would not normally do to pursue a loving relationship with your Savior, Jesus, right? Maybe something comes to mind, even as I mentioned that. Maybe there's just some very basics that aren't in your life right now, like, wow, I, I would spend some time with him in prayer every morning, or I would get some time in the Word to get to know him better and to hear his voice. Maybe it's something that you're, you're doing those things, and you're thinking, what's something unique that I, it's creative that I can do to get to know him better? Because if it was a, uh, if it was a person of interest that you were pursuing, you'd, you'd develop a math deficiency to get time with her, Right? What will you do to get time with Jesus? If you can't think of something, you want to get creative about it, come talk to me after the service. Let's, let's brainstorm together. Let's think, what would it look like? What would you do that you wouldn't normally do to get to know him better? Because that's, that's what your life is made for. The purpose of your life is to know Jesus. Lastly, we're not just a called people and a known people, but we're a sent people. It says in 14 that he appointed the 12 that he that they might be with him and that he might send them out. And then it tells in various places what he sent them out to do. Being a disciple is, is a matter of being with Jesus and then being sent by Jesus, right? The word church, I said, is it's the called out ones. It's the ones who are called. But the word apostle is the, the sent ones. It's the ones who are sent out. And there's a sense in our lives in which we need to be both of those, that we're, we're called out, Jesus calls us, but he calls us to something, to a relationship with him that then has ramifications as we're sent out, right? So the Christian uh, life really has three elements. We're, we're called, then, and then we're, 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 we know, and then we're sent. Or you could think of it as, as um, come and then be. Just be with him and then go. And when you go, it's not you're, going, you're not going from his presence. He said go, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When you go, you go with him. But he gathers you and he, he, we, we, become, we become shaped by him, by being with him, and then he sends us out. We are made to be a sent community. These 12 were made to be a sent community. They're a great model for this. These were guys who were timid and faithless and bungling and, and confused, and then something changes. If you're not a believer, you've got to ask yourself what changed. Because something amazing changes in all of these guys' personalities. They, their self-written testimony in the Gospels, remember that this is their testimony. They say, we were thick. We didn't get it. Half the time, we had no idea what he was talking about. We were hiding when he was arrested. They share all of their worst faults, and then something changes. And we see that these guys are, are willing to take hell with a squirt gun. They are, they've changed so dramatically and entirely. And you have to say, what changed, Right? Whether you're a Christian or not, and I would say that if you're a Christian, you've got something to insert there. They saw a resurrected Savior, and it changed them, and they would never be the same. They received God's Holy Spirit, and it changed them, and they would never be the same. On human terms, you can't explain this any other way. Come becomes go. As Christians, we recognize that there was a resurrected Christ in their life that after they saw him, life would never be the same. So I want, you, I want to show you where, where that sending took them. It's a map and it shows where the alleged locations where all 12 of the apostles died. Uh, the blue ones are, they're, they're, they're awfully confident that that's where that happened. The yellow ones are, there is some... Um, 
disputed claims on those. In fact, if you were to zoom in over some of those, you'd see multiple dots. There's actually more than the number of pins that you see there. In fact, um, because there's um, spurious claims on some of these, like Simon the Zealot on this map dies like five times, the poor guy, right? So just nobody can decide really for sure where he died. But you can see how these hometown Galilean boys went to, what, Italy, Greece, Russia, Iran, Ethiopia, India? That is so inspiring to think. But it's also sobering because this map shows you where they died. It doesn't tell you how they died. Here's some perspective on that. That's also based on church tradition. We only know for sure from the Bible, uh, the scripture itself, how two of them died. But uh, history tells us a lot about the rest of these guys. Flayed to death. Impaled by spears. Thrown off a wall and clubbed to death. Stoned and beheaded hung upside down by iron hooks. You get the picture. I know that's very graphic, but this is how it went down for these guys. When Jesus calls these 12 in Mark 3, think about that. This is where that call is going to lead them. 11 out of 12 of them are going to die a martyr's death. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is famous for saying in uh, The Cost of Discipleship, he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And that's true of all of us as disciples of Christ, because Galatians 2.20 says, I'm crucified with Christ, I no longer live, Christ lives through me. But for these guys, that was a literal reality. When Christ calls these men, he bid them come and die. Are you willing to follow Christ even if you can't see where it will take you? Are you willing for Christ to make you whatever he wants to make you for the kingdom? When Christ calls the 12, it actually, the, that passage uses the word create or make. It's not just that he called them, that he, he created them. He made the 12. He created the 12. He made the church. See, the, a disciple, discipleship is not about what a disciple can do for Christ, but it's what, what Christ can make out of a disciple. And that means for us, just in all of life saying, your will be done. Lord, here I am. Send me. Make me what you want to make me for the purpose of your kingdom. I can't tell all their stories, but I want to end with one that I think is, is pertinent. Um, that, that blue pin that you saw on the map in India, that's Thomas. Doubting Thomas. He traveled further than any of them. Uh, it's believed that he reached India uh, around 52 AD and that he was killed about 20 years later, around 72 AD, um, near the city of Chennai. And you can go up on the hilltop where it's alleged that, uh, that he was martyred. I was killed with a spear or an arrow. When we were at the Stonebridge School's inauguration, in um, for those of you guys who don't know, we have a, we have a school there um, in uh, in Telangana. When we were there, um, there was a uh, we, the commencement. They they inaugurated the school, and there was a man there who did. Uh, I think it was Caleb's dad. Those of you guys who were there can can correct me later, but I think it was Caleb's dad um, who gave a prayer of of blessing. A, 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 prayer of commencement, I guess, um, uh, a, a dedication. And I, I'll be honest with you, it was a long prayer, like a really super long, like a half hour prayer, right? Um, and moments of it probably glazing over as we were going with this, but I remember um, that he, at one point, he, um, early on, he, he was thanking God for the, the movement of the gospel into India. And so he said, Lord, thank you for the apostle Thomas. And he goes on to describe Thomas and his work and for his willingness to come. And thank you, Lord, that you sent Thomas to India. And then he goes on, he says, Lord, thank you for, um, for William Carey 
And I don't know if, if you guys don't know that story. William Carey, about 1793, goes to India. He's considered the father of modern missions, and he did his life's work in India. And then he moves on, and he says, Lord, and, and thank you, Lord, uh, for Amy Carmichael. And for those of you guys who don't know that story, Amy Carmichael, uh, early 1900s um, rock star in, in missionary work. I mean, she was there for 55 years without a furlough. She, she lived and died in India serving. The, I mean, so, and, and then he says, and Lord, um, and thank, we thank you for sending Stonebridge Church. And I remember, you know, when the prayer was over, I just looked at Rick and I whispered, he just put Thomas, William Carey, Amy Carmichael, and us in the same prayer, right? I mean, one of the apostles, the father of modern missions, right? A woman who changed the culture of India, and we built a school, right? It just felt so stark and out of place, and and we felt so unworthy of all that, but but here's this guy, this man who, who was thanking God and honoring all of the people who he believed that God had sent to advance the church in India. And Stonebridge Church, Charlotte, you were on that list. How beautiful is that? I hope that that doesn't make us proud, but makes us humble to realize, wow, we, we were just, here I am, send me. If you guys know the story, you know that our, our work in India was, was really just the development of us trying to just listen to the, uh, the Lord's leading and being with Jesus and getting a sense of where he was calling us. Jesus called us so that we would know him and so that we would be sent by him and do the work of building his church that started 2,000 years ago with 12 guys. And that we would get to be a part of that. That we would say, Lord, what are you going to make out of this church in the years ahead as we are in relationship with you and just trying not to fall behind you, not to run ahead of you, just to walk with you. What are you going to make out of us individually as we try not to fall behind you, not to get ahead of you, just to walk with you, just to know Jesus? What will that, what will God do with that? While we're taking up the offering, um, we want to show a video, and the video is going to serve two purposes this morning. Uh, the first, it anticipates the, the Global Leadership Summit, which we mentioned last week for the first time. Uh, but this is, uh, Stonebridge is going to be hosting uh, this event uh, this year, and uh, it's, it's the, the, the purpose of that is to help all of us grow in our leadership in the places where God has called us and put us and asked us to be for, for him. Uh, but it's also, I think it's a good reminder of the passage. As you watch this, I want you to think about the fact that living for Christ means being called by him and walking with him. And the best kind of leadership is the leadership that comes from just walking alongside the great leader and knowing him, knowing Jesus. So we're going to watch that in just a minute, but first let's pray. Father, we commit uh, to you um, our lives, Lord, saying, here I am, send me. Uh, We recognize, Lord, that that could scare us, that could move us in places we didn't want to go at speeds that we uh, we weren't expecting. But, Father, we, we can't imagine living our lives any other way than, than right um, at the foot of the teacher. And so guide us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> 